For those of you that don't know me, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this morning. We're so glad that you're here. If this is your first time with us or one of your first times, we want you to know that you are loved in this place. And we hope today is an inspiration and encouragement to you, helps you grow closer to God, grow in your relationship with Him. And if Antioch is your church home, as I say, each week it is a joy to be with the people of God in the presence of God, singing the praises of God. We're going to continue our series, our teaching series called Anchor of Hope, where we've been learning about how Jesus is an anchor of hope that gives us hope, even in the darkest, most trying situations, and allows us to carry hope into the world around us. We're going to continue that today. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, talk to you again as I've been talking over the last, I don't know, month or two about the development of an overseer team within our church Uh, We started talking about in the fall this idea of preparing the feast for the city, this idea of all of us coming together with the spiritual gifts God has given us, partnering together on teams, we call them serve teams, and doing that in order to be a people and a church for the city, that we would make much of Jesus in here and we would be a place when people come in that don't know the Lord or maybe making their way back to God, that they would experience hope and healing and love and grace and power. And I've been hearing so many testimonies of ways people have been stepping up in that vision and in that mission, and it's changing lives. I want to tell you just one, just for a moment, that I thought was so amazing. Uh, there's a security guard who works the parking lot. He's the, the building, uh, the, the landlords of the whole facility, they hire him. And He kind of goes around in the golf cart. If you see him, say hi. Um, He came up uh, a few weeks ago. I was standing at the door greeting. And he he said, hey, I'm bringing some people today. I want to bring them in here. I want you guys to to meet them. And so he brings this one family in. And then he comes back a few minutes later on his car. He says, hey, I've got some more people that I want to bring. I told them about you guys. And I was like, well, I wonder what you told them about us. And he, and he said this, it was just, I mean, I was, I was taken back. He just said, you know, I feel like there's so many places where I've been in my life where I walk in and I feel like people judge me based on what I look like. And he said, I have not experienced that from your church. I've experienced this to be a place where people are authentic, where people love, and it doesn't matter what you're dressed like or not dressed like or what you look like or don't look like, that this is a place where people love you. And so he said, I'll try and sneak into the lobby uh, during, the, you know, during the service to hear part of the inspirational message that's going on. And so I've been telling people that I meet on the property, rather than trying to get them off the property, I've been trying to say, hey, I know, I know a place that you need, you need to go. I know a people. Isn't that amazing? And I was like, that's so cool. How, how would he have had that experience? It's through our welcome home team. It's through those people serving with their gifts of hospitality uh, and a spiritual gift of, I guess, friendliness to just welcome people in. That's amazing, and it's changing lives, and it's changing people's hearts. And I could go on and on about uh, testimonies like that, and maybe we'll do that here in a couple weeks. Um, But as a part of this kind of overall spiritual growth initiative that we're trying to grow in as a community, we're also trying to develop as one of those serve teams an overseer team. And I want to talk with you about that uh, for a bit today. We've been talked to you in pieces about it over the last few weeks or a few months. And so I want to talk to you today and I want to present to you uh, our overseer candidates, what we're calling them, overseer 
candidates. And I've asked each of these individuals to serve for the next two years on this team to kind of guide us over the next two years. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, As we get started, though, I just want to point out, if you're unaware, uh, the people in our church come from a wide variety of backgrounds. We've got people I know in the room who grew up in a Pentecostal church. We've got people in the room who, who didn't grow up in church at all. We've got people in the room who grew up in a Catholic church, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Church of Christ, uh, maybe uh, we've got some people in the room that grew up in other religions. We've got some people in the room that were no religion, we're, we're atheists. And, and somehow Jesus has brought us all together around him. We learned last week that our church, though we're very different, uh, we agree about liking food and we agree about loving Jesus. And that's what brings us together. Um, and so whenever we start talking about uh, church terminology, what I've learned is that I need to take a step back because realizing everybody's coming from a different background and just try and help us gather around unity around what even terms mean. I remember one time I uh, used the term deacon with someone and I saw the vein on their neck begin to throb. And I was like, I'm I'm talking about this here in in scripture. And and, and they were flashing back to a church scenario and scene and they thought I was talking about that and I, I was not. And I just realized in that moment, I was like, oh, we need to clarify terms. And when we clarified terms, it was like, oh, cool. I want that. That's great. Let's go. So anyway, so just, just to clarify, uh, as a church, we want to follow Jesus. The goal of every church should be we want to follow Jesus, right? Jesus is an amazing leader. He's an incredible leader. And he wants to not only lead our individual lives, he not only wants to guide us, but he wants to guide our church, Okay? The challenge is not in that he's not a great leader, but as people, we're not the best followers if you haven't figured that out by now. We get distracted, we get disappointed, we get disillusioned, we get dejected, we carry our own biases and backgrounds into things, and those all serve as filters of really being able to hear clearly what the Lord is calling us to. So every church uh, should have leadership structures in place, people that are helping the church to follow Jesus more faithfully and more fruitfully. And you need teams of those kind of people because we all are limited in our own perspective, right? We're all are limited and God brings us together as a body. And so we believe that Jesus is the head of the church, right? Jesus is in charge of our church by faith through all our flaws and failures and things we could do better, but, but we want him to be the head of our church. We are his body. And we believe that the purpose of all church leadership should be designed to facilitate faithfully following Jesus Christ, okay? So when you read through the, the New Testament, and if you've been from different church backgrounds, there are lots of different ways that people go about providing church leadership. There are, if you grew up in a certain kind of church, you had a bishop and they were over your church. If you grew up in another kind of church, you were an elder-led church and the elders meant that they pastored everyone. And if you were in another church, you had deacons that were leading it. If you were in another church, all these different names and terminologies based on different backgrounds and different understandings. And the reason for that is the New Testament is very clear on the character of a leader within God's church. Very clear. 
but leaves a lot of flexibility in terminology and structure for churches to adapt as they seek the Lord for their particular time, place, and generation. So I'm going to share with you what our church believes about leadership, but that's not to say that some other church and the way they did it was wrong or bad. It's just different. It may have been bad. It may have been wrong. I don't know your experience, but I'm just saying I'm not trying to present this as this is the only way, what I'm about to say. I'm saying this is the way that we believe God has led us. Character is very clear. Structure There's a lot of fluidity for the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the need of the moment. So for we as a church are a part of a larger family of churches called the Antioch Movement of Churches. I believe in the U.S. there are about 50 of them now, around another 100 overseas. We're connected to them like sisters and brothers, like family, okay? And as a church family, we have some shared values and we have some shared oversight to help us all faithfully follow Jesus. So I want to talk to you for a moment about external leadership to our church, and then we're going to get to the overseers related to internal leadership of our church. So external leadership of our church um, is the Antioch Movement Oversight Team, okay? So this team is outside of our local church right here, but they help provide leadership for all the Antioch churches towards being a movement of church-planting churches, shaped by encounters with God, life-on-life discipleship, and mission through the local church. Or as we say it here, encountering Jesus, practicing his ways, and building his kingdom. And to be a movement of church-planting churches shaped by that. Underneath that kind of umbrella, uh, we each individual church within the Antioch movement has their own board of advisors. It's an external team. Uh, Ours currently are Drew Stedman, Robert Herber, and Donnie Martin. Uh, Robert and Donnie lead other Antioch churches. Drew uh, is the director of U.S. Church Planting for Antioch. They've been our board for a number of years. And sometimes boards change and rotate, but there's always an external board that provides uh, counsel, care, and accountability for our specific church. And we do an annual meeting uh, where we go through those different things. Those are outside of our church. Now, within our local church, within here, here in Dallas, this is us right here, underneath that umbrella, each local church within our movement of churches is senior pastor-led, or you might say lead pastor. I don't know the age or the amount of gray hair when you move from being called a lead pastor to a senior pastor. Please don't refer to me as a senior pastor, even though I crossed the 40 line, Uh, but, but that's the same terminology, right? Senior pastor-led, overseer-guided, and if you've ever been in a church background before, sometimes they're called elders, sometimes they're called overseers, it's the same word. Here, we use overseer because I think in 2019, it translates to both the lost and the found more clearly what it is, and elders have a lot of different understandings around it, okay? We are staff-run, meaning our staff is in charge, uh, they need to be about equipping the saints and doing the administrative functions of the church from Acts 6 and 7, Ephesians chapter 4. And then the engine of our church, the heartbeat, the, the fire that we believe the Holy Spirit 
puts in our church is that we're volunteer run, meaning a, a community where people are saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus with people, and we're going to be about his purposes here in our city, nation, and nations of the earth, okay? And that's the way, uh, volunteer driven, that's the way that we uh, lead. That's the way, that's our leadership structure. So I want to talk about the overseer team specifically. We've talked in depth about the other ones in the past, but our overseer team. When we're looking at this team, there's some specific things that we've been looking for. And if you remember back to our Cultivate series, we talked about how do you find your anointed fit? And we used those five C's that we covered in that series to talk about these are the types of people that would be good for our overseer team, related to calling. We want them to have a sense that God has called them to this ministry and to our church's vision and have giftings to contribute. We want to feel a sense of the Holy Spirit is leading them to serve in this way. And they have giftings that would be helpful uh, in that venture. Character. We want them to have godly character fitting of a leader in Jesus' church, Right? We want to have high character. Capacity. For the overseer team, we wanted people with leadership experience who have the time and the space in this season to lead. We wanted them to have competency. They, this is important. We have a discipleship school, and we've wanted all of our overseers to have been through both parts of our discipleship school, because we believe that's going to help us all in our, in our vision and unity together, and to have been faithfully leading already in our church. So they're already leading, and this is a new role or a new assignment. And then chemistry, that they are loving, humble, and honoring team players, so calling, character, capacity, competency, and chemistry. And so with those five kind of categories or frameworks that we've talked about this fall and we're looking at with this particular team, I want to point out something. Our understanding of ministry flows out of these five things that we believe Scripture teaches. Calling, character, capacity, competency, and chemistry. We do not believe that our ministry flows out of our ethnicity, our gender, our education level, our income level, whether you voted this way or that way or you've been here or there, right? Those are spices that can be added to our ministry, flavors, they're important, but they're not the bedrock. The bedrock is the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of God's people, giving gifts as he so chooses, right? And then it would be people with a calling, with character, with capacity, with chemistry, and with competency working together. That's our understanding of how ministry and spiritual gifts work. That's our understanding of what the Bible teaches on these issues. Okay, so with that as a background, I want to introduce to you our overseer candidates, and I'm calling them candidates for a reason. I'll tell you once we get through the team, but I'm just, I have a picture of them up here. Uh, if you've been a part of our church, you will know uh, many, if not all, of these people. Uh, first on the list, and these are in no particular order other than, I believe, the pictures they sent in, how I got them uh, in that order. Uh, first one being Bob Mabry. 
So you can see Bob and his wife, Suzette. Bob and Suzette both have been serving in our discipleship schools faithfully, love them so much. And Bob has agreed to uh, be a candidate for this role. Next uh, is Jayan Koshi. Uh, Jay and his wife, Nisha, I think they've served on every team in our church uh, at the same time. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I've initiated with Jay. They have been through our discipleship school as well. Love them and love their family. Uh, the legendary Amy Banta. Yes, so Amy's a big fan. Uh, we're a big fan of Amy. Amy has served for years uh, in our life groups ministry, even helped coach life groups. And uh, she's been through our discipleship school as well and I've initiated with her. And she is interested in doing this. Alex Sudan, and you can see her with her family right there. Uh, Alex and Jason, this is so cool. We are a church planting church, and a number of years ago, God put on our heart to plant a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so Jason and Alex were a part of that team. They went through the discipleship school. They went out to plant in Ann Arbor. There is a church there now, a church that has planted other churches. I'm actually going up there this week to see the church uh, Jason and Alex moved back a couple, about a year ago, I guess, and she's been serving on our worship team, and uh, she has agreed to uh, step into this role as well. Matt Reynolds, who many of you know, Matt has served faithfully uh, in our church, on our stewardship team, and in life groups uh, for a number of years, has been through the discipleship school. It's his wife, Savannah, Levi, and their dog, Finley, uh, and they're all amazing. Kenton Waldrum. Uh, Kenton is another faithful pillar in our church. I could go through the number of teams that Kenton and Karis have served on, but it would be exhaustive. And uh, they are just so grateful for them and have initiated with Kenton, and he has said that he is willing to step into uh, this role as well. And then last one uh, is Sterling Worth. Sterling and Natalie uh, went through our discipleship school maybe four or five years ago now. Uh, been serving in our life groups ministry and we talked about him and he's agreed to, to step into the role. Uh, and so this is our overseer candidates for the next two years in this team that we're putting together. And they are going to help myself, they're going to help our staff. They're going to help all of us in guarding and guiding our church towards our vision to help us stay faithful and to help us stay fruitful in pursuing Christ. One other just word of mention uh, is that each of these people are not on our staff. They're not paid by the church. I thought that was really important to have people from just amongst the congregation to serve in this role and to provide this type of leadership. Okay, so next step, and this is why I'm calling them candidates, and this is where I'd like to ask for uh, your input. Um, we've interviewed, assessed, and chosen individuals whom we believe meet the, the qualifications, the biblical qualifications of an overseer, and we're glad to present them as candidates for our local overseer team. Over the next seven days, if you have any comments and concerns about these individuals that may disqualify them from being overseers before they're appointed, please let us know. What I mean by that is not you find out Jay Koshy likes the Patriots and you can't believe that, and so you send me an email. <laughs> this is if there, are, if there are character deals that you know about that you think we may not be aware of, and each of the overseers has voluntarily agreed to submit to this process, but we want to hear from you. 
Okay, so if that's you, if you uh, by chance know of something, I want to encourage you to email in to that hello at Antioch Dallas that'll end up in my inbox, and we will follow up uh, with you on that and try and understand more uh, what's going on because this is a really important deal. So I'd like to just pray for a moment over this as we take this step forward, and then uh, next week our desire is to have some sort of installation process. Uh, of this team where we'll pray over them and they'll be here present face to face and whatnot. So if you just join with me in prayer, Jesus, we're so thankful that you are the leader of the church. God, and we just, we want to follow you more than anything, Lord. We want to follow you and we want to bear fruit to bring glory to your name. Lord, so I pray that as we take this step forward that you would give us wisdom you would give us vision. You would give us unity. You would give us love, Lord. And you would lead us by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Christina, could you bring me that water? Okay. Well, that's not even the message, but that's exciting. Okay. So uh, here's what I'd like to do uh, is if you would open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, we are going to be in uh, chapter 23, chapter 23 today. And I'm going to tell you a story as we get going to our text for today. Uh, it's a story that's really moved me. And I want you to go back in your mind, think back to your history classes, to World War II. And I want to tell you the story about a gentleman named Ernest Gordon who was a British Army officer captured at sea by the Japanese at the end of World War II. He was 24 years old when he was captured and taken to be a prisoner of war. And as a part of his time in a prisoner of war camp, he was sent to work on the Burma-Siam railway line that the Japanese were building through the jungle to try and prepare for an invasion of India. So for labor, they conscripted all the prisoners of war that they had captured from occupied countries in Asia and from the British Army, and they said, even though this is against international law, we are going to use them as our labor force to build this secret railway through the jungle so that we can be prepared to invade India. So a work detail of thousands of prisoners hacked their way through the jungle, and built this track bed through this low-lying swampland. And I want to describe to you the conditions uh, that were there. said that they were naked except for loincloths. The men worked under broiling sun. The, the temperature was 120 degrees. Their bodies were stung by insects. Their bare feet were cut and bruised by sharp stones. Death was commonplace. If a prisoner was lagging, a Japanese guard would beat them to death or behead them in front of all the other prisoners to make sure that everyone kept working. Uh, many dropped uh, dead from diseases like exhaustion, malnutrition, and other sicknesses, so much so that they believe 80,000 men died in building this railway and that equates out to 393 fatalities for every mile of track that was laid. One writer that I uh, read uh, describing this 
prisoner of war camp and their work said it was a scene, like a scene out of Dante's Inferno where he describes the stages of hell. This is the darkest of the dark, the lowest of the low. And Gordon found himself there. He said within the prison camp, uh, he lived through the event, within the prison camp, he said it was like a scene from Lord of the Flies, like it was survivor of the fittest. Every man for himself was the rule that worked in the prison camp. So in the food line, prisoners would fight over scraps of food or fight over the vegetables or fight over the grain or fight over the rice. They said the officers refused to share anything with the prisoners. That theft, one prisoner stealing from another, was common. He said that men lived like animals and hate was the main motivation to stay alive. Hate for their captors. And Gordon, after he had been there, could feel himself gradually wasting away from the combination of different diseases like malaria, dysentery, and typhoid. Said it got so bad that he couldn't keep down any food and he lost the use of his legs. He was, uh, couldn't feel any sensation in his legs. He was so ravaged with these sicknesses. Paralyzed and unable to eat, Gordon asked that he could be taken to what they called the death house. This was a house in the camp where people knew that it was over or they had some sort of disease that they didn't want to pass on to other people. They would be taken into this house and left there until they died. So you can imagine the stench, the flies, the fleas, uh, the the feces, everything in that death house, and, and Gordon gets taken in there. And he knows that the end is near and he's just trying to wait it out. And then something remarkable happened. Something that would change the course of Gordon's life and change the course of the prisoner of war camp. He said when he was in there just waiting to die, two other soldiers, two healthy soldiers, came in looking for him. So it was really uncommon. This was not heard of. Uh, and he wasn't even particularly close with these two soldiers. But they came in looking for him. And one of them said to him, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm called to love people. I'm called to love the sick, the dead, and the dying. And I would like to be your nurse to take care of you until you pass. And Gordon was taken aback, and then the second soldier came, and first soldier was from a Methodist background, second soldier was from a Catholic background, said basically the same thing. One of them said, I can do the day shift. One of them said, I can do the night shift. And so they were going to provide 24-hour care. They built him a little hut, not in the death house, but off to the side, and they took him out there, and they weren't just wanting to help him pass the time till he died. They began to believe for his life that he could be healed and could be rehabilitated, and could be healthy, and could live. And so they began to care for him. Now, Gordon, at this point, said that he grew up British. There was some church background, but that he was an agnostic, and he had a little bit of Christianity kind of floating around in his brain. He had been a philosophy major at university. But he said, through the love of these two soldiers, something just began to well up in his heart. He said that he began to discover through their love 
through the way they cared for him, through their sacrificial caring for him, he said that purpose and hope began to arise in his heart. And he began to get better from his diseases. And he began to go stronger. He regained the use of his legs through the care of these two men. And when he got out of his hut, when he had recovered and he went back into life with the other soldiers, what he found was that it wasn't just these two followers of Jesus, but he began to hear other stories that were shaking the camp of soldiers who would do very sacrificial acts of love following Jesus in the middle of what was a world of hate, hell, and death. One in particular uh, was a soldier who snuck out of the prisoner of war camp to go and get medicine for his friend that was dying. And he knew the consequences if he got caught, and he didn't care, and he did get caught, and they were going to execute him. And they said that they brought him before, uh, they had the samurai sword, they were going to execute him, and he said he read from John chapter 14 about the love of Jesus, and he said, this is what I've chosen, to follow Jesus and to love people, and is, you know, here I am. And he gave his life that way. And these stories of radical love of followers of Jesus who had connected with God's love for them, displayed through the cross, that they show within the prisoner of war camp, began to transform lives, transform Gordon's life. He began to get healed and so deeply touched by this, it kind of created a spiritual awakening. And since he was the philosophy major in college, they said, hey, why don't you organize some discussions for all these people that are now interested in either returning to the faith of their youth or exploring more about the teachings of Jesus because it was so evident that it was transforming the nature of the camp. So he began to hold these discussions. He said he didn't uh, know much. There was one scripture in particular that stood out to them. No greater love has a man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, the words of Jesus. And they would meditate in that group and they would talk about those kind of principles and those kind of teachings and they would connect with the love of God displayed through the cross of Christ for themselves. From that place, they began to uh, do uh, radically different things. And I want to read a quote from him about the effects of all this. This is him writing years later. He said, death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip, from the destructive grip of death. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, these were the essence of life turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death present, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, and he was calling us to the divine life of his fellowship. Wow. So the prison camp, Begins, begins to be transformed. Not only do they start to learn about faith, 
But as they do and people begin to experience hope, all these redemptive gifts begin to come out. People were composing uh, many orchestra symphonies. Others were teaching what they had learned growing up in their previous life. Others were functioning as, as doctors and trying to help people, counselors, and trying to work through different things. And they said in the middle of this world of hate, what came together was a garden of life. So much so, get this, that when the war ended, they said that the, the prisoners who had been a part of this prisoner of war camp, and they had an opportunity to take revenge on their Japanese captors, what they gave them instead of revenge was forgiveness. What they returned instead of hate was love. Gordon, uh, when he got out, kind of, he'd lost track of the two guys that had come in to, to help him. And he kind of went through the war records and he found out that one of them, shortly thereafter, was uh, killed on a submarine. And another one was crucified by a Japanese officer because he was so uh, shaken by this man's love and his faith that he crucified him. So powerful. The power of love, the power of Jesus to bring hope and healing even in the darkest hells. Why do I tell you that story? Because as we've been talking about Jesus being an anchor of hope, I think that story illustrates what happens when people connect with Jesus, when people connect with his love, and when they let that love flow through them into others, it transforms death into life. It transforms hate into love. It transforms despair into a place of hope. And I don't know what you're going, what's going on in your world this week. I don't know what you've been through or what you're going to walk into in the week to come. I don't know the places that God has all of us. I doubt, though, for any of us, it's as dark as that prisoner of war camp. And I share this story for you to help illustrate the power of if we will let Jesus be our anchor of hope, what it will do not only in us, but what it can do through us in the world around us. So I want to give you a statement today as we go into our text that uh, this is my summary statement that I want to make sure that you get. And that's this. Jesus is our anchor of hope because he gives us a love that will not run dry. Jesus is our anchor of hope because he gives us a love that will not run dry. Gordon experienced that. That prisoner of war camp experienced that even in the darkest pit, the love of Christ and the presence of Christ was there. And it's so easy for us to lose hope. And one of the reasons why Jesus is our anchor of hope is because in him we find a love that will not run dry no matter what you face. No death, no disease, no disappointment, no despair, no depression, no thing that you go through will the love of Christ run dry for you there. You can go to the darkest pit of hell and the love of Christ will find you there. And that gives us hope. And that love is demonstrated in thousands of ways, but it's most tangible 
most visible, most visceral demonstration comes on and through Jesus' death on the cross. His love runs through his cross. I want to make sure you get that. If we'll connect with this, we will, as Gordon said, we'll find life as it's truly meant to be lived. And if we miss this, the pain of human existence, the problems, the things that we'll go through, it will leave us as shells of the people that God desires us to be if we miss this. But my hope for you and my belief for you is you're not gonna miss this, that we're gonna get this because I believe God wants you to know how much he loves you and that he's demonstrated that on the cross as we are about to read. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse, um, let's see, 33. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33. The entire gospel of Luke has been moving to this moment. We've been studying for two years Jesus' life and his ministry, and it's all crescendoing to right here when Jesus goes to the cross. And I'm going to read a portion of the text describing this scene. I'd encourage you to go home and read the entire thing for yourself, but I wanted to read this portion to you. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up Jesus' clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Jesus had something very different on his mind. The soldiers also came up, and they mocked him. They offered him wine with vinegar, and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn. And in verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, you probably are familiar with this story. You probably are familiar with how the outcome happened. But just imagine that you were there in that moment and how truly bizarre this must have been and how devastating this must have been. This king that you've been seeing preparing to go to his inauguration ends up being crucified on a cross and dying. You, in that moment, I mean, I think it would just feel like I have no idea what just happened. We get the hindsight of looking back at it 
couple of thousand years later. But I just want to help you see with fresh eyes the uh, power of this moment. That here, the one you thought was the king died. And what we know looking back on is that it not just that we thought was the king, that it really was the king, the true king of all. And whereas most kings for their inaugural act, the way that they kick off their kingdom is some grand parade, some heroic march, some valiant you know, battle where they're shedding lots of blood, Jesus, the true king, inaugurates his kingdom by giving his own life. He dies for his enemies at the hands of his enemies. And even in that moment, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's our king. That's King Jesus. That's King Jesus right there on the cross, dying at the hands of his enemies for his enemies. And the disciples were so moved by this, they were so touched by this, they were so shaken by the meaning of his death and eventual, three days later, his resurrection, which we'll cover next week. They were so moved by this that they spent the rest of their lives reflecting on and talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and the power therein. And as we close our, our message today, um, I want just to remind you, so often we as Christians, we've missed the meaning of the cross. In, in, in the Roman times, once Constantine became the emperor and tried to convert the whole Roman Empire to Christianity, the cross became a symbol to put on a spear that you hoped would help you in battle. Kind of a good luck charm that your team was going to win the game. That was, you know, 1,700 years ago, but it carried forward even in uh, the, the, you know, the second millennium, the, the Scots or the Irish, I can't remember which one, they would burn crosses as a call to arms, a call to battle, a call to war, and the cross was a sign of we're going to war and our team is going to win. I think in our day, uh, many have reduced the cross to, I don't know if you've ever traveled from out of the country back into America, you fill out this customs form on the plane and ask you a series of questions. And one of those questions is, have you been on a farm or been around any livestock? And every time I'm coming back in, I have a panic attack about, because I'm thinking, have I been on a farm? Did I touch any livestock? Are they going to find out I did something? Am I going to be detained? Are they going to do this? Are they going to do like, it just, and, and many of us in our generation, we've reduced the cross to a check mark. Yes, No. Do you believe this? Yes, good. You're going to be let in the country. No, do you not believe this? Okay, you're going to be not allowed in, right? And I just want to point out whether we err on the side of, man, this big victory over here, military conquest, we're going to win, our team is going to win, or, or, or we think it's a little checkbox. We've missed it. We've missed it. And I want to take you to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it says this. It gives us the meaning, one of the meanings. And I could do a, a dozen, but one of them, one of the central meanings, the motive, rather. But God demonstrates his own love for us. When you read us there, I want you to put your name into it. But God demonstrates his own love for Zach. But God demonstrates his own love for, put your name in it, in this 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you want to know how God feels about you, you want to know if God loves you. You're like, man, I'm not like those people that get in the worship song and one worship song goes up and they're like, oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm not that guy. Like if you're like, I just don't connect with that. I don't understand that. I don't know if God loves me. I don't, I, I'm a spiritual dunce kind of thing. That was me. I hear you. And I want to tell you a secret. You don't have to go looking for some worship song that would move you. You don't have to go out into a field looking for a shooting star. When you look in the face of Jesus and when you look at the cross, there I want you to know that God, the creator, the king of all, is demonstrating his love for you because he gave himself for you to give you life. And when we look at the cross, we find the revelation and the realization of how deeply and sacrificially and how radically Christ loves you and loves you and loves you and loves every person you are going to see throughout your week this week. And that love is an anchor of hope for our souls. That love is an anchor of hope for our darkest nights. That love is an anchor of hope for desperate situations. That love is an anchor of hope for, I just feel led to say this, you're here today and maybe you feel like you're on the verge of divorce. You just feel like marriage is falling apart. What I want you to know is that the Lord has you here for a reason because he wants you to know that his love is an anchor of hope for your marriage today. For those of you that are here and you've got a child that's kind of, you just, man, way off on the deep end and it burns you and it gives you anxiety and you don't know what to do, I want you to know that the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross is an anchor of hope for you and your parenting and for your child. I want you to know those things. Whatever situation you're facing, I want you to know that that anchor of hope is for you and his love runs through the cross. So I want to give you three thoughts for the week. I'd encourage you to write these down. Three ways to take this idea, this truth, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three things I want to encourage you to do this week, to let this sink more deeply within you. Number one involves your head. I want to encourage you to study because this is fact. This isn't poetic language. This isn't a symbol. This is historical fact. And one of the things that has helped me so much connect with the love of Christ is actually studying the history. I'm more of an intellectual guy. I have lots of intellectual objections and questions, and I need it like mentally to make sense for me. And when I took time to actually study the historical data and details I realize that this is not a made-up story. This is truth. So I want to encourage you with a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He, is a, he was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He was an, a, an atheist. His wife surprises him one day. She converts to Christianity. He's terrified for what it's going to mean for their marriage, their lifestyle, everything they're doing. But he begins to watch transformation happen. 
and it brought out the best in her. So he goes on a journey. Investigative journalist decides that he's going to investigate whether there's any truth or merit to Jesus the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the book tells his story. There's also a movie. It's on Amazon. I'd encourage you to read the book, but you can watch the movie. He interviews medical experts, historical experts, archaeologists, and he just details it all out. And that's one of the things that has helped me connect with the love of God so much was mentally understanding this actually happened. And some of you, maybe you've already crossed that, that you've been like, I understand that. But maybe your kids are going to be asking you questions. And I want to encourage you to read this book so that you're prepared to help them understand as well. So it's not just mom and dad's faith, but it can be passed on. Maybe there's someone in your world that has questions. I want to encourage you, this is the type of book you can recommend to people and pass out and feel like it's going to help them see Jesus. Second thing that I want to encourage you with, this is related to your heart. If you're here today, and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to receive his love for yourself, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that here in a moment. If you have received Jesus, I want to encourage you to make meditating on the scriptural truths of the cross something that you do each and every week. Because in doing that, it helps your heart connect with the love that God has for you. And it thaws our cold hearts, like putting them by this hot fire of God's love. The third thing that I want to do is I want to encourage you this week in your relationships. I want to challenge you to act towards people, not based on what they have done for you, but based on what Christ has done for you. So the default mode that I find most people operate on is I treat you the way that you treat me. You know, if you're rude to me, I'm rude to you. If you cut me off, I cut you off. I do that a lot. And yet, what Christ's love compels us to do is to say, hey, I'm not operating on that rule system anymore. But I'm going to treat you not how you treated me, but how Christ has treated me. This will make you a better uh, coworker. This will make you better at your job. This will make you a better spouse. This will make you a better parent. This will make you a better neighbor. If you will take time to say, this week, I'm going to make a choice in whatever relationship God lays on your heart. And you're saying, I'm going to operate not out of how this person treats me, but how God has treated me in Christ. I have a spot on my drive home after work. Once I get off the highway and I'm driving to my house, it's my regular spot to go through this on my way into the house so that when I walk in, I'm operating towards my family, not out of how I perceive them operating towards me, but that I can operate them out of the way that Jesus himself has treated me. I would encourage you to pick a spot and do that this week, and you'll see how it will transform your relationships. With that, I want to invite you to stand. We are going to take communion together just as a way to reflect and remember, as Jeremy taught us, Christ's love. And it's our anchor of hope, that he is our anchor of hope. And his love flows through his cross. So in a few moments, the officiants are going to come forward with the bread and the cup. And we'll do that as the worship team leads us. But I would just want to say, if you're here today, and as I'm talking, you realize that you don't know Jesus. 
You don't know the hope found in Him. You don't know the love found in Him. You don't know the life that we heard from Ernest Gordon or we read about in Scripture. You don't know that love and that life. I wanna give you an opportunity today to say, man, I want to follow Jesus and I want to experience and know the love and the life and the forgiveness and the hope that Christ offers. You may have grown up in church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing Jesus. I'm talking about making him the Lord of your life, putting him in the driver's seat and saying, I'm following you. You might be here today and maybe you're making your way back to God. You've been gone a long time and you're trying to get back. I want you to know God's not looking for you to jump through hoops and get yourself cleaned up. He is running down the road to you, welcoming you in. So in just a moment, if that's you, I'm gonna ask everyone to bow their head. So it's a private moment. But if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to put your hand in the air just as a way to publicly say, man, I wanna follow Jesus. We're not gonna pull you up on stage. We're not gonna put your name on a billboard. Uh, We just want this to be a moment between you, God, and myself. I wanna lead you in a prayer. And so if that's you, if I could have every head bowed, every eye closed in this moment. If that's you today and you know you wanna make Jesus the Lord of your life, I wanna invite you just to raise your hand where you are. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, I wanna invite the whole church to say this prayer along with me. Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus, you're good. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you went to the cross on my behalf. And that you give me life You give me love, you give me forgiveness, you give me hope. I choose to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. I get the officiants to come forward. We'll take communion. Uh, When you're ready, you can come forward, take of the bread and the cup, return to your seat and remember the Lord uh, and just reflect on his love for you and for me. There is no one like you, there is none before. 
inside.